Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming out this afternoon. Uh, those of you who aren't familiar with IWP, we are an independent graduate school of statecraft and national security. Um, we have five master's degrees, 18 graduate certificates, a doctoral program, as well as courses on cyber intelligence and cyber statecraft. Um, so if you have any questions about any of those programs, feel free to grab me or any of the staff after the lecture today. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Sarah Vakshuri uh, for the lecture here this afternoon. Dr. Vakshuri is the founder and president of SVB Energy International, which is a strategic energy consulting firm that offices in Washington and in Dubai. Uh, she has over two decades of experience working in the energy industry with extensive experience in global energy markets, energy security, and geopolitical risk and has consulted numerous public and private sector energy firms and policy leaders. She has published articles in countless journals, including The Economist, Middle East Economic Survey, and Oil and Gas Journal. She's been the keynote speaker at many, many conferences around the world. Uh, she's quoted frequently uh, on Bloomberg, the BBC, the Financial Times, which I think she's quoted today, is that right? Um, putting you on the spot here. Um, as well as Reuters, Financial Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, Voice of America. She's the author of Marketing and Sale of Iranian Export Crudes since the Islamic Revolution and has contributed chapters to many books and uh, energy reports. She holds a PhD in Energy Security and Middle East Studies. She has an MA in Business Management and another MA in International Relations. I don't know how you have time to do all of that. Um, she was also a senior energy fellow at the Atlantic Council and was also at the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies. Uh, most exciting for us, she has agreed very kindly to teach a course for us this fall on energy security and the new geopolitics of energy, which we're looking very, very uh, much looking forward to. Uh, so please, uh, I'm tired of talking, I'm tired of talking, and you don't want to hear me anyway, please welcome Dr. Sarah Vaxley. Thank you for the kind uh, introduction. It's a pleasure for me to be here and I uh, thank uh, the Institute of World Politics to organizing and having this event. Uh, I'm also very excited to uh, teach this semester. So I was thinking to start with uh, the map of road for myself. I was studying energy security and um, what I always look when I want to understand the energy security dynamics. So just simple, very simple consumers, producers, and energy companies. So it's very interesting that the, for the first time when the concept of energy security was evolved was when uh, Winston Churchill decided just on the eve of uh, the World War to switch uh, the fuel of uh, British uh, Navy from uh, the UK and Wales coal to the oil that was coming from Persia or Iran, uh, Persia at that time. Uh, and on that point, uh, energy security is starting to be very important and valid for the consumers because uh, security of oil flow to UK, to Britain at that time would uh, ensure the uh, country would win the war uh, or otherwise would be a different uh, story. And uh, Winston Churchill's um, uh, answer to security of uh, energy was that security of energy only relies in var variety and variety alone. But 
the energy security concept uh, evolved during the time and now we look at it from different perspectives. So energy security is only not only from perspective of uh, consumers, which means uninterrupted supply of oil, uh, affordable price, uh, and uh, availability, but also from point of view of producers, uh, which uh, would definitely means access to investment, capital, and technology. Uh, also from the point of view of energy companies, which are both investors, producer, and also consumer of uh, energy. Something interesting is that the whole dynamic of energy security have been changed in the past few years from the time more than 10 years ago when I was writing my PhD thesis. Um, the most and significant uh, change in the market was, of course, the shale oil uh, production, which U.S. stands uh, in the center of uh, shale oil production. Canada is following U.S. And just to give you a perspective, in the past 9-10 years, the additional oil that was produced in the United States and Canada, totally, only the additional oil was about a whole Russia or Saudi Arabia. So the additional shale oil production in both the U.S. and Canada created a new huge energy producers you would count like Saudi or Russia. The other thing that have been changed is the geography of energy and the energy trade flow have changed and that potentially could change the geopolitics of energy and many trade and political relations. So when we look at energy security we look at different markets, oil market and natural gas market Potentially both have lots of differences. For instance, the prices of oil are set globally. The prices of natural gas are mostly regional uh, prices. The crude oil uh, export and sales are a very short commitment. The tankers are uh, exporting crude oil. We have spot sales. We have term contracts which maximum last for a year or maybe five years. On natural gas, because we have the, the transportation of natural gas, Traditionally, it has been either through pipeline or LNG, liquid natural gas. Because of the complexity of LNG, it's much more long-term um, uh, commitment. It's kind of like uh, 20 years marriage because all those liquefaction and degasification units, all those ships, they, they require a much more longer uh, partnership between the countries. However, one of the changes that has happened and is happening in a market due to the shell production uh, shale gas, especially in the U.S., is that all these long commitments and uh, long-term uh, contracts in LNG markets are changing. The regional prices are changing because simply a sheer amount of supply of natural gas and LNG from the U.S. An interesting point, if I want to tell you, is that last year the amount of shale gas production in U.S. that was rise was historically the highest uh, production in the whole history of energy and uh, the 100 uh, BCM of uh, natural gas was uh, produced additional uh, last year. Uh, so, uh, talking again about crude oil, of course, the heavy crude oil, light crude oil, uh, the quality of crude oil is all matters when we are talking about crude oil um, as uh, when we move to uh, petroleum products market, things would be more sophisticated when we talk about the quality of crude oil. Um, one nuance about the oil prices that we all know they all crashed from $100 to $50 was when the oil prices are low, naturally the upstream side would not make so much money, but the downstream and refineries make a lot of profit out of lower prices. So something new that happened was that in the light of low oil prices and when the prices of oil start crashing from $100 to about 50 
uh, around range of $50 per barrel, most of the major upstream oil companies start acquiring the downstream uh, businesses and uh, looking into uh, merging between upstream and downstream. On a, a, a product market, we have, of course, different complexities, like uh, the major produce, uh, major uh, actors in refined petroleum products are not anymore Saudi Arabia or OPEC, it's US, India, Korea, and China. Uh, the, the, the demand for uh, uh, petroleum products market is uh, rise by economic growth and uh, the oil prices, so it's very different from how crude oil uh, crude oil demand grows. Regulations like the IMO 2020 that requires uh, the tankers to use low sulfur uh, fuel oil, they all uh, impact on refined petroleum products. So the first three slides was mostly for to start the story of energy security, mostly for, for the students. That's the course that I'm going to teach and um, these three slides are mostly for um, uh, students, but the major question and interesting point is the oil weapon. So historically we talk a lot about oil weapon and when we talk about oil weapon we all think of the Arab-Israeli war uh, when the OPEC and major producer used oil as a weapon against the uh, consumers. But lately, in the past decade, uh, the oil weapon have been used against the major producers, like sanctions that today we have against uh, Venezuela and Iran. Well, today specifically is very exciting because we have the news that U.S. administration is going to grant zero waivers to uh, Iranian uh, exporter of oil. So moving uh, to Iran, uh, you might already have the infographics. The numbers are uh, small on the screen, but you can see... Um, On the right side and right top, you can see how Iran's oil production and export has been declining since uh, May, uh, in May uh, 2018. President Trump announced the sanctions on Iran. The major, the, the big fall on the uh, on the right side uh, on your graphs, if you're having that, uh, started. The major fall uh, on the graph starts in August, and uh, the, the oil export sanctions did not go into complete effect until November. But the August was a critical point because the first round of sanctions, which were targeting insurance and uh, delivery of Iranian oil, went into effect. And that had special consequences on Iranian oil uh, delivery to uh, its customers. And Iran had to rely mostly on its own, uh, its own uh, energy tanker fleet to uh, supply its oil. Talking about Iranian oil sanctions, the thing is that the sanctions on Iran is not a new phenomenon. They are used to the sanctions more than 50 years, uh, almost 60 years. Uh, the first sanctions on Iran implemented when Iran um, nationalized its oil in 1951. And uh, at that time, the Anglo-Persian uh, oil company, uh, we know, known as BP today, uh, put a sanctions on Iran's oil production at that time that was exported to different countries. Um, and Italian and Japanese uh, companies were the first ones to uh, sending new tankers to Iran and uh, purchase Iranian oil. So at that time, Iran learned that if it had its own tanker fleet, it could take its oil to its customers. So every time Iran was under uh, sanctions and pressures, obviously learned something new, a new lesson. Uh, Iranian tanker company, which today is carrying most of Iranian oil under the sanctions to its customers, the seed of that was uh, set 
back in 1950s when Iran uh, was sanctioned for the first time. And now is one of the major um, tanker companies uh, in at least Middle East. Uh, so coming back to our curve, uh, the big, uh, so we had the, uh, the decline starting in August that the sanctions on insurance and uh, uh, transportation of Iranian oil went to effect. Then we have the biggest one, and they're reaching to the lowest level in uh, around November. And November is when the sanctions went to effect. So like today that everybody was surprised for the news of zero oil export waivers, uh, despite the fact that U.S. administration's mantra from beginning was zero oil export, but everybody was surprised today. Um, people keep being surprised. I think. Uh, so uh, the reason for that is that market was expecting that we are going to have at least a minimum export of Iranian oil in May. Uh, if you look at the middle uh, major table, on the right side, we have our scenarios for Iranian oil export in May and after that. So we were anticipating that most likely China, India, and Turkey would receive some sort of waivers. And if only these three countries receive waivers, Iranian oil export in May and for the next 180 days after that would remain around 470 to 500,000 barrels on the minimum level. Then we were having scenarios that China and South Korea, uh, Japan and South Korea would also granted waivers, and in that scenario, our number of export would reach about to 600 to 800 thousand barrels per day. We were expecting, and still we are expecting, that a minimum amount of Iranian oil export to flow, about 400 to 500 thousand barrels per day, for different reasons. The main reason is security of supply. Iranian many times threatened that if they cannot export any oil, they are going to close the Strait of Hormuz. Is this, em this, is this the t empty threat or not? Uh, so far, historically, Iranian never closed the Strait of Hormuz, but we don't have a historical event that Iran was not able to export a single drop of oil. So the more we get closer to the zero oil export, an actual zero, the threat of closure of the Strait of Hormuz, or cyber or actual attack on energy facilities of Iranian neighbor, or some Houthi missiles launch in Babel Mandat increases. That's why we were thinking that a rational decision-making um, um, process in, in terms of Iran oil export would be that at least a minimum of four or 500,000 barrels per day of oil would flow. The other reason is that Iran would need about 500,000 barrels of oil cell to have enough credit or money to purchase the necessary goods and medicine which count, count as a humanitarian issue. So if Iran is not able to export any single drop of uh, oil, uh, there's a big question mark of who's going to pay for these humanitarian goods. Then we have the question of China and India. It's a very interesting story when it comes to China, Russia and India. As we were talking about how geopolitics of energy and geography of energy has been changed, the political relation and partnership between Iran, China, and uh, Russia is changing. So this year, China is going to be, the, according to IEA, the largest importer of LNG, surpassing Japan. So uh, we have a Chinese president deciding that the Chinese skies are going to be blue again, and this has increased significantly the global demand for natural gas, but also mostly coming from China. Where is most of the gas coming to or going to China from United States? So US has this huge potential for production of natural gas and China has this huge market for that. So you're going to have perfect marriage between China and US uh, on the natural gas export side. Also on a crude oil, US market, despite even the fact that for the past 
few months in 2018 and uh, early 2019, we had zero or close to zero U.S. export to China due to the um, trade issues between the two countries. U.S. natural U.S. crude oil market has been increased in 2018 in compared to the previous years. So U.S. share market share in both crude oil and natural gas market in China is increasing. But also now China is able as a as a consumer to invest in U.S. and have state in U.S. shell and bring back its gas, required gas or oil from resources and reserves that it has its own stake invest, and investment. But countries like Iran, they never allow any investor to have any share under uh, production in the field. So it perfectly works. On the, so we see that China, uh, on the first row, it's China. If you look at under China, you see that even under the nuclear sanction, China was still importing an average of 500,000 barrels of oil from Iran. But this reduced to about an average of 360 under the current sanctions. Well, many people ask questions that there has been months that Iran exported about 600 or more than 600,000 barrels of per, uh, oil per day to China, including last month. One important issue is that Iranian uh, oil company, National Iranian Oil Company, books and leases some bonded storages in China and deliver oil to China. Some part of it is purchased by China, about 360, according to what they have a per permission from U.S. favors. Some of it, about 200,000, most of these months of 200,000 per day, have been stored in storages that have been leased by National Iranian Oil Company. So they never passed the custom or cleared the custom in China. So China, in reality, never violated any regulations or U.S. laws because these storages are not practically considered as import. Well, can China draw from these storages and use them? Yes, they can. Uh, in the next few months, zero waivers, yes, there are still a lot of liquid stored in these uh, storages, mostly condensate, not a heavy crude oil that now is lacked in the market. Mostly condensate stored in these storages and uh, of course, uh, China could draw from that. That's for the uh, intelligence and due diligence companies to look into uh, the storages and see how they're dropping. So China, under President Trump administration, had historical compliance with U.S. sanctions. Traditionally, China was always opposing sanctions and would never be in compliance. Why is happening? Part of it goes back to what I talk about, the interrelation uh, between inter-energy relation and energy trade between U.S. and China. The other thing is the ongoing energy trade. So one of the success of President Trump's administration in implementing the sanctions is that they're negotiating country by country, case by case. So one of the things every time on a table when it comes to trade negotiations from Chinese side is that we're going to expand or increase our imports from Iran. On U.S. side is that uh, watch your imports from Iran. Also, the other thing is that we talked to a lot of law firms in DC. Many Chin Chinese companies, about 1,500 or more, have applied for waivers from US administration for their trade tariffs. All of these private companies, which most of the major oil producing and uh, major refineries and banks like Kunlun Banks, CNPC, Sinopec, they all are part of this list that they want to receive waivers from tariffs to do trade with the U.S., but also they're looking into investment in U.S. So they are not interested in violating the sanctions. And if you look at uh, the, the third column on the right side are scenarios for November. We never talked, 
we never talk to State Department people. They never tell anything. They're all confidential. But most of these scenarios that we had, we presented it back in early November uh, for the Bank of America, Mary Lynch's conference. Most of these waivers are very accurate to what it actually uh, happened. How we knew that? We knew that the private refiners are going to halt Iranian oil export. So we went back to into our database and we sub uh, we deducted whatever Indian or Chinese private refineries were important from Iran, and this is the number came up. So only the public refiners imported from Iran, both in India and China. And India, the story is slightly different. So. I, before going to India, I like to have a, open a parenthesis about Russia. Alongside with China's relation that is about to change and evolve with Iran, Russia's relation is also evolving. So Russia, during the current sanction, has not been a good friend or supporter to Iran uh, under the sanctions. We see that lately Russia has been really getting close to Saudi Arabia, which is a rival to Iran. And uh, Russia now has higher stakes and higher influence in the OPEC. But also Russia Saudi are looking into potentially Saudi's investment in Russian LNG and Russian export of gas to Saudi Arabia. Historically, Saudi Arabia never imported any source of energy from anywhere in the world, but now they are looking into importing gas from Russia, but from fields and from LNG facilities that they have their own investment. So that's what another game changer in the market. Iran, uh, Iran's not only crude oil of Iran was reduced significantly. Iran could not export any LPG for the past few months. And we talked to a lot of Japanese trading company and we asked them, why are you not buying Iranian LPG? They are offering lots of discount. And the response uh, to us is that Iranians are not interested in business. And we asked them, aren't they offering you discount? They're like, Iranians are not interested in business. Because Iranians are not offering long-term stake, long-term shares, or long-term deals to Japanese or to other traders that are purchasing Iranian oil or production uh, pr uh, refined products. And now companies that like Japan that are major importers of let's say LPG, they are importing LPG from other sources in the world that they have their own investments. It's more secure and also they are benefiting from both parts. They are both producers, have shares in the production, but also consumers. So this, this is something that Iran really missed uh, in the game. So Russia has not been really a good supporter. Iran and, Iran and Russia has signed a deal for swapping Iranian oil. About 150,000 barrels of oil. Iranian were hoping that Russian would buy this oil from them and somehow sell some of the other oil so it would help them to swap this oil. This never happened. We talked to Russian, uh, uh, some of the Russian officials. We don't think, and they're confident at least until today, that they're not going to enter this swap deal because Obviously, they don't see enough profit to engage in a swap deal with Iran in return for further U.S. sanctions or further conflict with Iran. So again, goes back to the question of profitability. It's not really profitable for U.S. for Russia to uh, do such business with Iran. Now on India, India is a totally different story. India now has investment and presence in one of the ports in Iran called Chabahar. They have investment in Chabahar and they have done uh, lots of engagement. This is strategically very important for India because it counters China's presence 
in the Guadalajara port in Pakistan. So China has been expanding its uh, military, its economic, trade and uh, developmental uh, presence in uh, Middle East going all the way to Central Asia and Iran and Chabahar port is this critical place that India could balance that power. But also this is in the same line with US national security. Balancing China, counterbalancing China's presence in Pakistan, having access to Central Asia through India, which is a good ally or a good friend for U.S., is critical for U.S. national, national interest as well. And India did not start, kickstart their investment without a permission or consensus of U.S. governments um, here in D.C. So, again, going back to the minimum export, we know that if India goes to zero oil egg imports from Iran, the first reaction of Iran to India would be, okay, you're out of Chabahar. And India, and again going back U.S., would not possibly on a rational decision-making process would want to lose this uh, influence on Chabahar port. And this is something that um, India might lose. That's why going back to minimum scenarios, we think and we still think that there would be minimum uh, uh, amount of export is still uh, going out of Iran, uh, but obviously we could expect surprises. We have seen surprises before from the current administration, so we never could um, uh, take the zero out of the scenarios still. Um, I would uh, like to stop here and uh, we'll be very happy to answer your questions. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much for your interesting and thoughtful presentation. What is your outlook for the price of crude oil this summer at the end of the year, given the sanctions on? Iran and Venezuela, turmoil in Libya, possible Iranian retaliation, the Straits of Hormuz, or Bab el or elsewhere? That's a very good question, also hard to answer. Uh, we have different scenarios for that. So if we have a limited Iranian oil export of about 500,000 barrels per day, we know that OPEC in Russia would easily cover for this, so we won't have in significant drop of heavy crude oil, which these days we have due to Iran sanctions and Venezuela sanctions. So most of the experts and analysts looking into about 75 to $85 uh, per barrel. But then if you have a zero Iran oil export, another consequence happens in the market, and that's the psychologic factor. So not only the actual supply interruption, which President Trump's administration hopes that Saudi Arabia, Emirate, OPEC, Russia perhaps, and U.S. Uh, strategic petroleum reserves would cover for that, it had a psychological impact. Because if OPEC, most of OPEC uh, spare capacity is used to cover for Iran, there's very little spare capacity left in the market for any potential or possible future interruption in the market. Putting that along with Iranian threat of interrupting the supply of global oil, either straight of Hormuz or elsewhere in the world, that creates a significant uncertainty in the world. And this uncertainty of the supply interruption has an immediate impact on a paper market and an oil stock market. And as you will know, everybody, that the amount of trades in a paper market is way higher than actual physical trades. So that exaggerates the fear and the psychological impact in a market, and that could push up really the prices high. Yes. Can I, I build on that question? Uh, Presumably, people have, thought, have done the same analysis you've done, people within the administration. Are there things that could be done to mitigate some of that psychology, anticipating that that would be the market reaction? I mean, what, if you're the Trump administration at this point and you know there's going to be a psychological reaction to a, a zeroing out of Iranian exports, what do you do to prevent that psychology from? 
Well, I, I think that uh, the President Trump's administration already announcing that they're going to releasing SPR uh, res reserves, that has an impact. But if, as a President Trump's administration, war is not a profitable uh, scenario for you, maybe helps with the election, upcoming election, or what, whatever. So if you're not really looking into an actual war, uh, it's going to be very hard to push Iran's oil export to actual zero, and you expect the market to act calmly. Because obviously Iranian keep, first of all, sending out threatening statements, which has its own impact. And then they can start doing things like you might one day wake up and there's a Houthi missile launching to one of the oil tankers passing Babelmanda. They might start pushing the threat outside of their own lands. But if there is no stake, um, the Strait of Hormuz could be closed. But for how long? Strait of Hormuz could be closed maybe for a couple of weeks or a month maximum, but would after that the world act, react calmly? We are not sure. We don't know what would be the second act. So I don't think that psychologically this is if the Iranian threat starts and the oil goes to actual zero, the, the brain is creative. So you can come up with all these creative scenarios of what would be the potential interruptions in the market along from very little spare capacity left in the market, so that uncertainty is created. So, um, I mean, U.S. administration could assure everybody that they have enough military presence around the world to mitigate and stop Iranians uh, or security oil, but uh, any small interruption could cause that. So I think very little you could do. The only thing you could do to mitigate that is just to leave this minimum amount of export. Because if you leave that minimum export of 400, 500, and Iranian in return having no access to cash, that would calm down the psychology of the market and secure all of these choke points. Yes, Akisa. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, I have two questions. The sure. first one is, uh, you told me that Iran needs to export 400 to 500, right? And you told me that Iran, I mean, uh, India is a potential buyer. What about uh, China or Turkey? You know, who will be the potential buyer? And also, does you know, 400 or 500 include a strategic strategy into China as well? That's the first question. Second is, uh, I understand that Trump already spoken, the U.S. had already spoken with uh, uh, Saudi and the U.A. for compensation for the production for, from Iran. But uh, what would be the justification within OPEC you know, to agree to you know, cut the production in December? Thank you for your good question. So on the first question, uh, we think that we don't think that India would go more than 200 70 to 250 because that's how much the public refineries used to import from Iran. So we are not expecting Reliance or any other private refiners to import from Iran. So we don't think that India would take more than 170 to 250 of Iranian oil. The rest of these 500 mostly would go to China and some to Turkey. Um, again, going back to all those reasons that these countries have potentially to import from Iran. I think we think that it's hard for China to politically agree with such sanctions, and historically they never agreed. And during the Obama administration, they were not even really complying with the sanctions, but they have shown a historical compliance now. We don't think that they would easily go to zero unless there is some something offered to them that we don't know as of now. Uh, the other thing is that President Trump, before November, his administration, they said the same thing. They said no country is going to grant it a waiver, but surprisingly, eight waivers came out. 
Well, the situation today is different from November because, first of all, we don't have an upcoming election that U.S. administration is worried. But in November, we had the midterm election coming up and the prices of gasoline and voters' decision was important for them. The other thing, uh, the second issue is that U.S. shale production has been increased in compared to November and the export capacity is higher now. So there is the market is more well supplied than back in November. Also, announcing this news uh, by Secretary Pompeo at this level has just gives a very strong message to the market. Um, and your second question was? Well, uh, you know, the U.S. had already spoken with uh, Saudi and the okay. okay. So I think what we think is that first of all, looking on a term contract, uh, we looked in 2018. We looked at the 2019 contract. Saudi term contracts with China increased back at the end of 2018, despite the OPEC decision for cutting back production. So Saudi in the past few months really cut back product, cut back production. But the amount of term contracts, well, they are flexible. They don't need to lift has increased. So there was already an indication that Saudi is going to export more to uh, to China sometimes in 2019 because there have been negotiations done and contracts in place. Uh, the OPEC acts, uh, they try to manage the market. So, so far what they say is that we are not, they are not going to announce that they are going to go back to their previous level or add any additional supply because they don't want what happened to happen when it in uh, they don't want what happened in back in November and October to happen now. So in September and October, OPEC and Russia increased their production significantly in anticipation for Iran's lower export. But U.S. administration came up with eight waivers. The market reacted and said, "Oh, everybody expected four or five waivers. Now eight waivers. It's going to expand Iranian oil export to 1.5 million barrels. Prices start coming down." This time, OPEC would wait until May for the final detailed announcement of U.S. Uh, waivers on Iran, and we think there is a high, probab uh, high uh, possibility that OPEC members, Saudi, UAE, even Russia, would increase their production to cover for Iran. So we think that OPEC will co cooperate with you. Sure. Yes, sir. So, uh, just a, a thought, but we've got a phenomenal amount of capacity that's going to be coming online next 12 months. Pipes that are opening up to bring that down to the Gulf Coast. There are three deep water terminals that are being built in various stages. The timeline in which that new crude production, which is all export only for the U.S., where does that fit into this equation? Is anybody probably barrels of capacity? That's a very good uh, question, sir, because. Um, what we think is that Iran under current situation, it actually helps and benefits the energy security in the market because all the producers from OPEC, shell producers and Russia are kind of benefiting from having Iran out of market. If you have Iran at 2.5 million barrels per day of oil and then having additional oil coming out of Permian Basin is going to collapse the prices and then the shell will not produce as as it's expected. So having Iran in this position, and again, going back to the trade relation that Iran has and the, their approach to the trade negotiations with not only major Western companies, but even with the traditional Asian uh, uh, partners like Japan, like China, even with Russia, no one is really benefiting from the current terms of trade and investment in Iran. So that's why the Iran is where it is now. But something that I would like to add to your point about U.S. production is that most of these production that is coming out and through the shale are all light uh, crude oil, and Iran is producing heavy crude oil. And having a uh, 
those sanctions on Venezuela, which no one knows when the government is going to collapse. I think when they implemented them, people were expecting maybe next Tuesday, but the government is still there. And uh, that sanctions on Venez those sanctions on Venezuela at least are cutting about uh, half a million barrels per day of heavy crude oil. Iranian crude oil already is down to 1 million barrels per day, 1.1 from 2.5. So about 1.4 is already cut, another uh, heavy crude oil. So we already have close to 2 million barrels per day of lower heavy crude oil. And having that two point, which kind of equals what you were saying, uh, crude oil, it's all light. And U.S. refineries are among those refineries in the world that, first of all, they really are attracted and they really like that heavy crude oil. Then we have uh, refineries in China and around the world. Having the IMO regulation coming up, there might be lower appetite, higher appetite. There's lots of different analysis on how the crude mix would change in the refiners, but it's still we need heavy crude oil. And unless OPEC steps in in the market uh, to cover for Iran and Russia, we don't have enough uh, or we won't have heavy crude from U.S. So that will all change the uh, trade flow um, and geography of flow of oil, of course, in the market. But it's still, market needs to have some comfort for having some heavy crude oil spare capacity in the market. But your uh, point is very relevant. So on an overall oil supply, the market will be well supplied by end of this year from what we have today and what we, have back, we had back in November. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, what are your thoughts on, on how this affects the dynamics of, uh, of sanctions on Venezuela and Russia going forward? So the sanctions on, uh, on Venezuela, the, the sanctions are designed in a way that oil can be exported, but the payment cannot be done. So it's not directly, ex uh, it's not uh, the difference between Venezuela and Iran sanction is that the Venezuela sanction is not directly uh, targeting the actual export of uh, the oil. Well, of course, if you are a producing country and you cannot get money for that, you don't want to export. But it's still, there are lots of other ways or lots of other scenarios that this oil could be exported. You know, there is a point that you don't want to shut down your fields unless you want to decide that you want to shut down your fields. So there is, the dynamics are different from what is happening uh, in Iran. On the Russia side, the sanctions, again, have, have not directly targeted the production. So we don't think that necessarily the sanctions on Iran are going to like ease the sanctions on Venezuela or Russia or other ones. We think that they're all designed in a way that they could complement each other. Yes. Yeah, I have one more question. Um, you mentioned the Saudi Arabian um, investment in Russian energy. Um, what's the, what do you think is the, um, you know, the purpose? What's, what's the benefit for Russia? So, uh, due to the sanctions that I just mentioned, uh, Russia's access to foreign investment have declined significantly, and this. Uh, this new, new relation between Saudi and Russia could benefit both sides because uh, Saudi Arabia could bring the investment to Russia, but also on the other side could ba brought back the natural gas that uh, is uh, feel kind of secure for the country. But also on the political side, uh, this has been created a very wise balance for Saudi Arabia because since the first uh, Saudi, uh, the, uh, Saudi, uh, Saudi king, King Abdelaziz, there has been this oil for security pact between U.S. and uh, Saudi Arabia. 
And when the U.S. dependency overall on import of crude oil uh, from Persian Gulf and Saudi Arabia reduced significantly, uh, especially during President Obama's administration, and they start a rapprochement with Iran, Saudis start feeling that this oil for security is not, in, is not enough for their security. <coughs> I apologize. So during the current leadership, uh, King Salman's leadership, the Crown uh, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, he kind of introduced a new strategy of investment for security. So that oil for security changed from investment for security. And we see that Saudi Arabia has all sorts of new types of investment around the world, um, from China to India to United States, investment on agricultural lands, buying agricultural lands in California to refine to refineries and petrochemical factories. So Saudi had been much more aggressive than before in the past few years to investing around the world and creating those long-term uh, partnerships. And um, having balancing this relation with Russia, which has been historically very close to Iran, which is a major rival for Saudi Arabia, also had been another uh, smart move uh, for Saudi Arabia. It also has some benefits for Russia. Um, I'm wondering about the demand for the heavy crude oil with the IMO changes and um, China looking to more natural gas. Is demand for it decreasing as well? Um, and what areas do we need heavy crude for that light crude can't um, or other areas or other types of oil fulfill? So heavy crude oil has been and especially with the IMO regulation is going to be very profitable to process for the uh, major high-tech refineries in a major playing co playing company countries like United States, China, uh, Korea, because these refineries, even in India, are set in a way that they are able to refine a heavy crude oil, which traditionally has been lower price than light crude oil, and produce more light distillates or. Uh, more uh, profitable distillate. So there are many people that are arguing for major refined petroleum products uh, actors in the market and players still the heavy oil is important. But on overall oil demand, if your question is that now we're moving toward more natural gas, how much is going to is oil would be still relevant? The answer is yes because many people are arguing these days are these uh, new electric car would impact the demand for oil and the thing is that the demand the driving the cars are only driving about 18 to 19 percent of total crude oil demand the rest is in aviation petrochemical trucks and as far as we're still expecting everybody drinks water in plastic bottles and Cosmetic products are in plastic bottles, so petrochemical, all the paint around the world. So petrochemical remains very much valid, and you see that Saudi Arabia has a very wise long-term strategic view of maintaining the global demand for its oil by all of this investment in all of this petrochemical industry around the world, from India to China to to United States that benefits from very cheap feed stock in US. So they had a very wise decision. But also aviation, the jet fuel, um, the people in Asia just started to fly. Uh, their share of flying and compared to US and Europe is way lower now, but now they have higher incomes. They're interested to fly more. There are much more cheaper uh, flight available. So people in Asia started really to fly and all of these are going to drive the demand for jet fuel and um, 
the trucks. So the, the, we think that demand for oil will still grow. Yes. How, how do you see that minimum amount of oil moving post-May? Will, will the Iranians move, move crude on their own tankers, or you know, will China and, and uh, India send their ships to Iran to pick up cargo, or you know, is there going to be some kind of uh, offshore area where they conduct transfers? So this is a very good question. I'd like to go back to the November scenarios on the, uh, the right column. You can see the November scenarios. So with the eight waivers came, uh, in our scenarios we described that we don't think that any oil is going to go to Greece or uh, Italy. So even though that there were some waivers and U.S. allowed uh, Greece and Italy to import oil, we were expecting that no oil is going to go to Europe. Uh, the reason for that was there was not enough shipping tanker capacity from NIOC, National Iranian Oil Company, to send this oil to Europe. And all the sanctions on Iran's uh, oil shipping and insurance created a situation that no country wants to allocate any tankers to bring this. So only Iranian would use their own tanker capacity to move this oil. And historically, they only used a million barrels per day of their tanker capacity to move this oil around. So we were thinking that Iranian tanker capacity would be busy to take their oil to Asia and also sometimes used as a floating storage. Japan had their own government insurance, uh, the government bag insurance, which was expired in March. It hasn't been renewed yet because they were not sure if there's going to be any waiver granted or not. If Japan uh, somehow, miraculously, after today's statement, gets some sort of uh, waivers to import Iranian oil, they might have some government back uh, insurance to import Iranian oil on their own tankers, but otherwise uh, Iranian tanker fleets are moving all of this oil around. Getting back to the IMO 2020 or the Marvel 2020 requirements for the tankers, since most of this uh, oil is transported by tankers around the world, what is what is the impact of those uh, emissions restrictions trying to affect the 2020 relative to the tanker fleets? I mean, are they are the tanker fleets going to be able to comply with those requirements? And if not, what's the impact going to be in well, that's a, and that requires a more detailed analysis, but as of now, there has been lots of different movements uh, among the tanker companies from uh, installing or uh, the scrubbers to clean these uh, fuels to potentially using other uh, sources of fuel like LNG maybe in the next coming year. So what the market expects is that there is going to be some sort of cheating in 2020 but eventually and gradually, the tankers are moving to replacing this high sulfur uh, fuel oil, either with a cleaner uh, fuel oil or installing scrubbers or going just to use, uh, being prepared to use LNG instead of uh, fuel. So, well, is there some kind of cost impact? What well, I'm trying to get at is when they look at that and say, over the next uh, one, two, five, ten years, this is, that's going to cost a lot of money. Anybody looking at that saying this is what the financial impact is going to be in terms of uh, oil price, for example? 
I'm, I'm sure that there have been companies that they looked into numbers, definitely. Um, I don't have any number on top of my mind to suggest now. But what we know is that, for instance, in the case of Iran, the, or like case of Mexico, that the refineries are pretty basic and they produce significant amount of high sulfur fuel oil. They don't have enough storage capacity to store them. That is going to have impact on the refinery uh, capacity and fit stock. Iran, at this point, they have built new refi uh, condensate refinery capacities that would help them with producing enough gasoline that they need domestically. But as a question of what is going, all of these high sulfur crude oil, uh, fuel oil going, there is not so many answers for that as a solution for Iran. But on the other side of the seas, in the neighboring country, you have Fujairah uh, in UAE that is building up on their storage facilities and they are getting really ready and uh, perhaps profiting from this IMO 2020. So I think that it very much depends case by case, country by country, depending on uh, both the suppliers, the, on the refinery mix and uh, supplies of how ready they are uh, to mitigate uh, this uh, supply of fuel oil. Uh, and on the other side, on a consumer side, on a tanker company, I think it's very dif differs from company to company that how ready they are. I'm sure that those uh, tanker fleet that are ready for uh, I'm with 2020, they're going to make a lot of profit. So, but I don't have any specific number in my mind to suggest. Yeah, on the IMO uh, 2020, uh, I was reading that the, uh, the chief uh, purpose there is to get rid of the sulfur content, and that's uh, supported by China because of their obviously growing air pollution problems. Even China is behind the elimination of sulfur, and that's could, could lead. Analysis uh, is calling from the beginning of September and going to March of next year. The, the, the margin, uh, the, the refining margin of, of, of good, uh, uh, good refining uh, companies could double and triple. I mean, they're going to be big, uh, a bonanza, you know, these, uh, these refiners, you know, because of the uh, improving margins owing uh, to that. I have more questions about Iran. I'm on, Iran is denied its foreign exchange uh, income. Are they supposed to to roll over and play dead? Well, what are they going to do? They they cannot buy the food, the medicine, all the other necessities of life. What you cannot starve a country of 70, 80 million people. I mean, they're going to do something, right? About this. How are they going to 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 retaliate? What are they going to do? Well, that's a big question, political question to be answered because in the past few months, or past, since March, Iran was also flooded. So most of Iranian states are affected by massive flood that it was significant. There has been a lot of uh, casualty and lots of cost for rebuilding all of these uh, 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 affected areas. But also many of the agricultural lands have been flooded. Many oil fields have been flooded in the southern, uh, southwestern part of Iran, and Iran's production has been cut due to the flood. Not significantly, about 20 to 40,000 barrels per day's estimate. So at this point, Iran, of course, needs to access to more funds. Um, we don't see any way that they could have access to this fund. Their budget for 2019 is set for export of about 1.5 million barrels per day at the prices of $55. So even now, at the current level, their export is way lower than what it should be. The prices are obviously a bit higher, but it doesn't compensate. Something that is happening that it could be worrisome is that as the movement of security forces in Iran, so 
uh, in the past month and past weeks, they have brought back some of their militia groups that are local in Iraq or Afghanistan or Lebanon uh, under the name of AIDS for this flooded area, but they haven't gone back. So maintaining some of these non-Iranian uh, militias in Iran could kind of suggest that they're preparing for any potential protest to crack down on the protest because it's obviously easier for non-Iranian forces to crack down on Iranian forces, but also suggest that maybe they are preparing to defend their countries from any potential war. Sort of following up on the gentleman's question, what is the purpose of the American sanctions? What is the U.S. trying to do by implementing these sanctions? I'm not in a position to answer this question because uh, Obviously, the question that U.S. administration should answer that. Uh, I think many people are wondering around the world uh, what is exactly the end result or the goal to achieve, uh, being achieved. But um, Iran's nuclear program and then the missile program and missile activity has been always being targeted and uh, highlighted by U.S. and some European uh, country. You could say that this is the... Uh, major factor, but this is a question that I cannot answer. Well, I mean, I, I don't really answer specifically myself, but what I heard today when you were talking about the uh, permissions being lifted or being restricted to several countries, no longer getting waivers. Ostensibly, the goal is to get Iran to reduce their supported terrorism outside of Iran and somehow renegotiate this nuclear posture. Any sense if that if that's in fact sort of what's trying to they're trying to do to get the sense of you know, if Iraq wants or Iran wants to get the oil come back on, do they have any kind of hope of having either one of those happen? so I mean again it's very hard to predict but the general sense is that Iranian lost their trust in negotiating with US after the nuclear deal. So when U.S. walks out of the nuclear deal, they kind of lost their tr trust in U.S., but they gradually lost their trust in U Europe to be able to back them and support them because European Union, they were very strong at the beginning when U.S. Uh, administration or President uh, Trump uh, stepped out of uh, JCPOA, but all of this support remained as a political rhetoric. It didn't go into much of a practical solution. European companies, all of them stopped importing any oil from Iran, they didn't help with any delivery of Iranian oil. They created the special vehicle, the special purpose vehicle, but we talked to all these French or Swiss or any European company, they're like, we're not going to use this because the moment we sell sugar to Iran, sugar, not oil, uh, our bank will come and say, how did money come to your account? Did you do some business with Iran? Sorry, you're not interested in doing business with us. So simple. So they don't want to lose their financial support. Your U.S. Uh, pension fund companies, they went to European uh, companies and firms. They told them that if you do any business with Iran, we pull out our investment and stakes. So there's no business. And they lost their trust in Europe, too. So they know that if there's any other negotiations, they kind of expect that they only have to give up more, like uh, maybe Libya at some point, and then just being naked and being attacked much easier. So it seems that at this point they're reached to a point that, you know, we are in a strategic silence. We tried not to be provoked, or they, have, they, they were trying to keep it, at least in 2018, and when President Trump went, all these sanctions. So 
they were really patients and what they usually call it is a strategic patience that's uh, they're um, mostly with the Republican administration Iranian government historically have done this uh, policy so they've been really quiet um, they you didn't see any missile attack by Iran or launches by their militia groups in around the world in the past few months but this patience is reaching to an end if Iranian oil export goes to zero because as gentlemen said then there is no even there's no cash today but there's no even credit to purchase food for your people and you're pushing all the way against the wall so I mean there might be some negotiations happening uh, by some maybe fractions of government that are interested to survive or lead some group of people that are having some grievances to create a new country political system there might be a kind there might be a point that Iranian elites reached to this decision making process that all the pillars of country have been uh, chewed by termite we need additional pillar let's do the negotiation but at this point the general census shows that they the official body of Iranian government have lost their trust in a negotiation as an effective uh, way so it's some of your opinion is it's not it's possible but not likely that Yes. Yes, sir. I'd offer an observation. Uh, I'm an old commodities guy by background, and to make it really complicated, we've got, the United States has got a phenomenon of excess fossil fuel production coming off stream over the next four to eight months. And we need markets. So we use our position, our different tools in our toolbox to just keep it really simple and go get long term market share. Sir, I really like all of your statements and I'm very much in the same page with you. It's not only fuel oil and it's not only the 2.5 million crude oil coming out. Look at the LPG. Uh, look at condensate. Iranian condensate was not part of the sanctions under the Obama administration because there was no condensate to go to where Iran was exporting. Iran was the major supply of condensate to South Korea. Today, South Korea brings all of the condensate from U.S. So they don't need even a drop of condensate. They are not even negotiating for waivers because the condensate just go from U.S. to South Korea. So all this condensate, propane, natural gas. So, and unfortunately, I or fortunately, I mean, I don't know. Depending on where in the game you are to think, is that Iranian ways the terms of trade was in a way that even like Japanese companies are not interested. It's not only U.S. It's not Russia. It's not Saudi Arabia because of their political rivalry by Iran, but most of the businesses in the world, most of the oil firms, most of the traders are not, everybody benefits from having Iran outside uh, of the game. And uh, that, that's the case, yes. It opens uh, lots of door for crude oil, for natural gas, for uh, the refined uh, petroleum products, condensate, yes. And also keeps the prices on a good, range for the shale producers. So that suggests that this situation could go for long if Iranian could stand on their knees. So the best policy, that minimum export policy that we had in our mind was that this 500 would keep Iranian on their knees, but they will not collapse, they won't create wars or headaches or new like Iraq or Syria, but they it helps the whole market to survive. That's why we're still thinking that the zero, the actual zero, it's a, it creates problem, but 400, 500 may be more rational. Yes? Do you see the, the um, illicit gold 
trade is a significant source of revenue for the Iranian state or illicit or otherwise going through the UAE to help prop up the, the state during a, a prolonged uh, sanction period? Well, we don't have any actual number on that to put that in, in the economic machine and formula to answer your question accurately, but historically they use that as kind of a payoff for political support or military support. Um, I don't know how much that would, or how, what is the role or place for that in the whole uh, Iran's economy. Well, thank you so much for listening and for all of the questions.